So I see the green light. That means we're good. Uh, we're in Deuteronomy 24, and we're closing in again on the end of the covenant stipulation section of this document. So what's happening is <clears throat> Moses is reviewing for Israel, hey, here are the laws. This is how you're going to live. You're going to set your society up this way as opposed to the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all of the people who set their societies up in different ways. And this section that we're in has parallels in the ancient Near East. You can read, I just was reading this morning, the Middle Assyrian laws, and they're surprisingly similar in the things that they legislate. But the way that they are, or what they legislate may be similar, but how they legislated and the punishments and the outcomes and the crimes, very different. And so what we see is that there's a touchstone, there's a, there's a point at which God is entering into ancient Near East society and pulling out of that society his covenant people that are going to live amongst the rest in that society. So it's really important, and I emphasize this every week, because otherwise, if people don't know the background, they just open up Deuteronomy, they start reading these laws, and they're just like, what is, why am I even reading this? Why does this matter? Or worse, okay, so this is how what, what we have to do today. This is, quote, biblical morality or biblical legislation. And they don't realize, no, this is covenant Israel legislation under the Sinai covenant, not biblical legislation as in the whole story of Scripture. So that's why we have to keep that in mind. You don't pull out laws and try to just apply them today, and you'll see it. You'll see fundamentalists and you'll see skeptics alike try to do this to either bolster or knock the Bible. And both of them are mishandling Scripture. Because what you have to do is say, no, this is God's laws for his people at a time in history for a specific duration. And they were not meant to be permanent or universal in every aspect. And that's a much more nuanced answer, and that's harder to arrive at. So what do we do with them uh, because of that? And it's much easier for people to just say, let me just read it and either accept it or reject it. But too bad. <laughs> That's what biblical theology is about. It's about thinking, reasoning, it's reading all of Scripture and not just looking for lists and bullet points and just give me the Cliff Notes version. So that's why we do this Bible study every week. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 24. We started last week. We got through our part of chapter 24. And these laws, again, they all have to do with things like rights for the vulnerable in society, family integrity, covenant community membership, even uh, rights for the workers and the oppressed, even all the way down to their animals, as we're going to see. So these laws, we're not going to have time to, to you know, expand on each one individually because we're going to get all the way through chapter 25, the end of it, hopefully. But as we go through these laws, listen, and it's not as important that you understand what every single law meant in its context, although that's helpful. And that's what the commentaries are for, and I'll try to point out some things. But it's more important that you see the big picture, which is, hey, Israel, you're going to be a society that's different from those around you. And in the ways that the cultures around you do their practices, your practices are going to be pointing to a higher ethic than theirs. Even though from our point of view on this side of the new covenant, we look back and go, but that's still a lower ethic than the gospel. And in some ways that is true, but we're looking at it from the other side of the appearance of the Messiah, who was going to conclude all of this and then usher in the new covenant. So we have to keep that in mind lest we get too critical of what we see in the Old Testament or just dismiss it as unimportant because it's still God's word. It's still authoritative and it still conveys his, uh, his, his heart 
for his people then, and that gives us an idea of who he is and what he wants for his people today, even though we don't keep these laws. I can't emphasize that enough because it's so often misunderstood. So let's jump in, verse chapter 24, verse 5. If a man has recently been married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. There's a wordplay in here. That word, he is to be free, nahri, it actually means unmarried. And so he's, he's newly married. So in terms of other obligations, consider him unmarried, uh, unmarried to those obligations. There's a, there's a wordplay here that it, it can't trans, gets lost in translation. But what it's saying is, hey, yeah, this is suicide, by the way, for a, for a military general, right? Your young men just got married. They're, they're your youngest. They're the, the cream of the crop. They're the, that's the people you want. There's a reason that when the government drafts in this country when they used to, who did they draft? You know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, 21, at the prime of life. That's part of the tragedy of the draft. And so what God's saying for this is, is yeah, that's somebody that any other country in the ancient world would absolutely want fighting their battles because they're fighting for their new wife, their new family, whatever. God's saying, nope, no, not the case. For a year, they are to, uh, this would be so that they could provide for their own family, so they could raise up a family. This is enough time to start having children, which are all the things that are a priority in Israel. Family, children, lineage, uh, the name being carried on, all of that stuff. A uh, woman marries a man, and then he's sent off to war and dies. She's now, the chances of her remarrying plummet significantly in that culture. And so if she doesn't have a child, she's on her own, widow, young widow. So again, God is saying, this is one way you're not going to be like the other cultures. Uh, verse 6, do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt. Because that would be taking a man's livelihood as security. Again, NIV says a livelihood. The word is nephesh, soul or life. That would be taking a man's life is what it says. Um, <clears throat> the, the way it would work is, who's going to answer? Say hello. <laughs> the way it would work is in the ancient world, um, if I made a, a loan and I wanted to make sure, okay, I want to make sure I get paid back then I would demand, okay, I'm going to give you this loan, but you've got to give me collateral, right? What this law is saying is you can't take as collateral the millstones. Why? What's the big deal? Well, millstones were the household way that they created and prepared food. So if you took somebody's millstones as a pledge, you're taking their livelihood. They can't feed their family. You are keeping them in bondage. It's what we would call, we saw it last week, predatory lending. God hates it. And so God's saying you're not going to take millstones, not even just the upper one. They need that. Don't take a loan and then take the thing that they need to be able to provide for themselves while they pay you back the loan. So verse 7, if a man is caught kidnapping one of his brother Israelites and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. Kidnapping, again, we've seen this before. Kidnapping, slave trading in Israel of Israelites for each other, criminal, capital criminal offense. So this, this would have precluded a ton of uh, nations' forms of slavery that have existed throughout history. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8. 
In cases of skin diseases, NIV says leprosy, but it's not technically Hansen's disease, which is what leprosy is. This would cover a wide range of skin diseases that we talked about during our study of Leviticus. Uh, be very careful to do exactly as the priests who are Levites instruct you. You must carefully follow what I've commanded them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way after you came out of Egypt. This is a callback to Numbers when uh, Miriam, go back and check it, but basically rebelled against Moses and God said, okay, you don't like his dark wife? Well, I'll make you really white then. Um, and so there was an ironic punishment in it, but then she had to go, what this is talking about is not just remember God punished her, but she then had to go and undergo the purification and she was a prophetess of Israel. So if even Miriam had to undergo the purification rites before she could enter back in the covenant, how much more should everybody else? Is kind of the point of that callback. So then verse 10, when you make a loan, back to the concept of loan and lending, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into his house to get what he has offered as a pledge. Stay outside. Let the man to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, do not go to sleep with his pledge in your possession. Literally, do not sleep on his pledge is what it says. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. Then he will thank you, and it will be regarded to him as a righteous act in the eyes of the Lord your God. So this is what you most people would take as a pledge. Okay, I'm going to give you this loan, but you've got to give me something to make sure you pay me back. And a lot of times it would be the cloak, the outer garment. If somebody's very poor, that's the only thing of value that they might have. And what God is again saying is, no, you cannot take that overnight and keep it. Why? Millstones you can't take because they need that to survive to feed their family. Cloak you can't take because they need that to survive, to sleep in, to live in. Your cloak was your garment, it was your sheet, it was your pillow, it was your bedding, it was also your identity, it was wrapped up in your garment. It was much more than just a coat for us. It was a huge part of your identity. And so God's saying, you know, you're not going to sleep. And this notion of uh, dignity, even for the poor. You don't get, just because you made a loan, you're gracious, you don't get to go in somebody else's house and take it. That's incredibly humiliating in an honor and shame culture. Even poor who have to take a loan still have dignity. And your giving them a loan does not override their dignity as a person and their ability to provide for or at least to continue to be the head of their family. So again, God's, he's, he's just undercutting all of these notions that your economic standing uh, would give you entitlement over another person's dignity, over another person's well-being. Not in Israel. So verse 11. Do not take advantage or literally oppress a hired man who is poor and needy. Whether he's a brother Israelite or an immigrant living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's poor and is counting on it. Otherwise he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So if you hired someone and they worked, you paid them that day. You didn't withhold their payment. Why? Because they needed to. Remember, this is pre-refrigeration. This is pre-preservatives. This is pre-pantries. You ate daily but the food that you made daily or that your wife or that your mother or whoever prepared daily. This was a daily thing. It was not, okay, we'll pay you at the end of the month kind of thing. They didn't have the provision. So he's saying, do not delay or they'll cry out to me. You'll be guilty of sin. Again, putting the impetus on the one who has more 
to be generous to the one who has less. Now, it doesn't say the one who has less is off scot-free. You know, we're seeing through all these legislative practices of Israel, they have to work, they have to provide, they have to give their pledge, they have to do all these things. But that doesn't negate their dignity, doesn't negate their humanity, and it certainly doesn't give the one who lent any standing over them in God's eyes. Verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. This is a bedrock principle in Israel that was very different than the other ancient Near East laws. Code of Hammurabi, the Middle Assyrian laws, the Egyptian laws. You could absolutely be put to death if your father did something that was illegal or that was criminal. Your family would pay the price. Now this raises some tension because we go, wait a minute. God's already said, but I'm the Lord your God uh, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation but forgiving to the thousandth generation. And we talked about that in Exodus and back in Numbers. But the key is, God is saying, in, in, when you, you have to hold this balance, when it comes to sin and guilt and the ramifications of evil, then the one who's the head of the household, that does affect the rest of the household. Third and fourth generation is a household in ancient Near East. Remember, they're not a mobile society like we are. Parents, grandparents, even great-grandparents would live in the same house as their offspring. So the sin of the, the head of the household does absolutely bring iniquity upon the household in terms of sin, in terms of holiness, in terms of uncleanness, in terms of any of these religious categories. But legally, you do not put somebody to death for the sin that they didn't commit. And Ezekiel would stress this again. God would stress over and over because Ezekiel, the, the people in his day would say, we're suffering this captivity and this punishment because of something our parents did. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Yes, your parents did it. And yes, that is part of why this judgment is happening. But you are doing the same things as well. You haven't repented and you are suffering for your own sin. So again, this principle is very important in Scripture to hold that balance. Yes, there are ramifications in a communal aspect as Achan and his family will find out later in Joshua. But in terms of human courts and legislations, outside of God who can judge the hearts and intentions of everything, in terms of human legislation, nobody dies for somebody else's sin as punishment. That, even that has theological implications when we see what happens at the cross and the, what's so amazing about that. But that's so far in the future. Uh, verse 17. Do not deprive the immigrant or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat the, olive trees from, when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Literally, Hebrew literally says, it is to be for the fatherless, the immigrant, the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, again, you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So this whole section, God is saying, hey, Remember what happened to you and how much you hated being poor, being destitute, being in captivity, being oppressed by the Egyptians, being slaves, being all that? Okay, you're about to go into this land 
Don't you dare turn around and do that to somebody else. You do to them what you wish would have been done to you. It's so easy to forget when the oppressed gain power and freedom, how often they turn around and become the oppressors. And every society, every culture in the world has experienced this phenomenon in some way. And God's telling Israel, guard against that. Remember, twice he says it, remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. So that's why I'm commanding you to do this. Verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 1. This is a great, uh, this is a summary of everything. Basically, when men have a dispute, they're to take it to court and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. This is the underlying theme of, of Hebrew uh, Old Testament justice is if there's a dispute, you go to the judges. The judges then are tasked with upholding justice. They'll declare the one guilty and the other one righteous. That's what it meant to be righteous before that ever had theological connotations in the New Testament, it meant you are in the right in this lawsuit and you are guilty. And that was what the courts were to decide. The judges were to decide that in Israel. That's why it was so crucial that the judges not take bribes, not judge to, to judge impartially, not show favoritism, and to know the Torah, to know their legislation, their covenant, so they could extrapolate from the laws that he's giving that are very specific into all the situations that they would encounter. That's how ancient Near East law worked. It was situational versus exhaustive. So the judges would go, okay, this is the type of law that God's given. Here, let me hear your complaint. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, yeah, you're actually guilty. Even though you didn't break the letter of this law, what you're doing is against the spirit of this law. So you need to pay this person. You're in the right. You're guilty. This is how it would work in the ancient Near East. That's why it's so important. But that could easily degenerate into all kinds of blood feuds and punishments either being too lenient or too uh, harsh. And so it goes on to relegate it that if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall have him lie down and have him flogged in his presence with the number of lashes his crime deserves. But he must not give him more than 40 lashes. If he's flogged more than that, your brother will be degraded in your eyes. So this is something we have to reckon with. Ancient Near East, punishments were you either paid a fine, if it was capital, you paid with your life, or if it was anything in between, you were beaten for it. And we look at that and we go, oh, that's so barbaric, corporal punishment. Is it really, if you've been to a maximum security prison and seen the conditions that people live in, have you seen some, you know, we, for our perspective, it may seem barbaric, but if you ask prisoners today, hey, would you rather be beaten or spend two years in jail? Most of them would probably take the beating. The point is not that what's right and what's wrong in terms of overall ethics, but rather seeing that this was how they punished in the ancient Near East because there weren't prisons, there weren't jails, there weren't house arrest anklets, right? There was no way to, so you pay the money, you pay with your body, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's what the Lex Talionis law of Exodus is about, um, or you paid with your life. And so in the cases where you do pay with your body, where there is corporal punishment, what God's being very clear is it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the presence of the judge who gave the decision. Not going to go off and happen behind closed doors. And that way the person inflicting the punishment could either be tempted to go too light or too heavy. And it's going to have a limit. And it's going to not go beyond that limit because it's not to degrade the person. They're still your brother Israelite even if they're committing something that's a crime. By way of comparison, the middle Assyrian laws, um, you would get 60 lashes 
just for something like insubordination or disrespect or, or whatever the king. So again, even when comparison, uh, 40 lashes is not that bad in terms of the ancient Near East. And you could maybe argue, if you've done prison reform work, you may even argue that it's not that bad compared to what we do today. But that's a whole other issue, and that would take much further time than we have. Uh, it goes on to say, verse 4, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. We've already seen what this rule applies to. If you missed it, rewind, check the podcast, uh, check the YouTube channel. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is the example law that Paul pulls out to show that workers deserve to be paid not to be denied while they're doing the work. So check 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and see the video because I don't want to go back over that again. Verse 5, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry a strange man. NIV says outside the family, but literally the Hebrew, a strange man. Her husband's brother shall take her, marry her, and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. That's a technical term in Hebrew. I think it's uh, Tom Rambam or Tom Bam, Yambam. And it's, a, it's, it's an actual word that we don't have in English. It's not brother-in-law. It's the one who's supposed to take the wife of his dead brother if he dies. It's like an actual term. We don't have one in English, so the NIV just says brother-in-law. Uh, the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what's to be done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall then be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So this is a weird practice, for us at least. Not weird at all in the ancient Near East. The Middle Assyrian laws have whole sections on this exact practice. The sandal was your symbol of your obligation, of your authority. When lands were exchanged, usually a sandal was given in pledge. So it had to do with your, your um, head of the household standing, your sandal. And so taking one of someone's sandals was a way of like taking some of their authority, at least symbolically, or some of their reputation. And spitting in the face was just like, that's universal. It uh, doesn't need transcription to other cultures, it's spitting in somebody's face. But it's saying, look, you have a role to play in building up the family. Your brother. Now, this is not just any brother. It's specifically limited. When brothers are living together, this means they are still in one household unit. And one of them is married, presumably the older. And he dies before he has a child who can carry on his family name. Because when that family, as it grows, the, the uh, male are going to be the heads of the new household, the new clans that will rise up. If one dies without somebody carrying on his name, then rather than go off and marry somebody else outside the family, the family integrity was important in the ancient Near East. So the wife of the dead, the widow, would her first choice would be to marry the brother, usually. And we look at that again, we're like, oh, well, that's not how marriage works. Because we see marriage as primarily romantic and relational, rather than family binding and procreational. And that's just something we've got to deal with. 
we view marriage differently than they did in the ancient Near East. But for a culture where marriage is first and foremost about binding of a family, providing for security and building up and carrying on the line, then this, the, the brother not doing this, not marrying the widow of the, uh, his dead brother, was a terrible insult, not just to his dead brother, but to the whole family that they were a part of. Because one of the names in Israel, one of the names, the family names, would be wiped out. Because there was no one to carry it on. Why wouldn't the brother want to? Because he just didn't like her? Probably not. It probably had to do with if he didn't marry her, that means that the inheritance doesn't get divided. See, if he didn't if two brothers are living together, me and my brother, my older brother, he got married. He's got a wife. As soon as they have their first male child, half of the family's inheritance is going to go there. When we stop living together, maybe our father dies or maybe circumstances, whatever happens, eventually half of that inheritance, or actually the double portion because it's the older brother, would go there. So if he dies before having a child, a male child to carry it on, and I don't marry his widow and produce an heir to continue that line, I get all of that inheritance. I get that double portion. So it would be financially prudent for me not to build up my dead brother's name. Israel. This is what the whole Judah and Tamar incident, I mean, excuse me, the Onan incident back in Genesis was all about. When Onan spilled his seed on the ground, it was not it, the spilling of his seed on the ground. It was he was refusing to build up the line to provide, to do what he should have done uh, because of his death of his brother. So anyway, this is, there's a lot of cultural baggage in this that we just look at today and go, That's, we don't have anything like that in our society. No, but we do have people who have become widows or destitute and who are, we're tempted to take advantage of or to at least benefit from their misfortune if we act a certain way, if we don't sacrifice some of our own comfort, our own standing, our own desires. So in the ancient Near East, in Israel's culture, that's what this law would have been resonating with, whereas we look at it today and go, that's weird, I understand it. There's so much more on this. Check the commentaries on leveret marriage is what it's called. Leveret, L-E-V-I-R, the levier. That's a Latin word for this term, uh, the brother-in-law marrying. There's a ton on it, but uh, that was common in that world. And so once again, God in Torah is regulating and adjusting what is already common and is a result of fallenness of humanity, which is sin and death, being childless. All of those things are aspects of the curse of the fall. So going on, let's try to finish up. And this is such a great verse. We can't not talk about it. If two men are fighting, literally in Hebrew, brothers, uh, are fighting, and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. Okay, this automatically is just a weird law. Uh, and it's a barbaric law. There's a blog post that I've written on this. So if you go to discipledojo.org, it's pull up slash blog, and there's a whole post called Groin Grabbing Girls and Biblical Barbarism. All right? I've written it discussing this passage in detail. The reason that I say that is because there's a lot in this, but there's a translation problem. This does not say what the NIV says it says or what many other popular translations say it says. It literally says, let me pull up the actual literal reading, just so you'll know the range of what's going on. Literally in Hebrew, it says, 
If men are quarreling, striving together, a man and his brother, so automatically this is a family affair. This isn't your husband got jumped on the street. And the woman or wife of one draws near to snatch or deliver her husband, her man, from the hand of the one beating or striking him. And she reaches out her hand and seizes his genitals. I love saying that in a watch Bible study. Then you will trim her palm or hollow or basin. Kaf is the term. The word for hand is yad in Hebrew. The word for palm is kaf. This says kaf. This does not say yad. This is not the word for hand. This is a translation issue with this verse first and foremost. And it doesn't say cut off. That verb could mean cut off. But it could also just mean either cut, slice, or shave. So there's a lot of question about what is this verse actually saying to begin with. And it's, it need not read in the most barbaric sounding way as many of the translations seem to imply. You can, I've, I've noted in the blog post, there's links. You can check out Lyle Esslinger's article in Vedum Testamentum. It's a scholarly article called the, the Incident of the Immodest Lady Wrestler or something like that. But he goes through, looks at all of the Hebrew context, and says basically there's something going on here, but we don't exactly know what, but it probably has to do with the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. What did the woman try to do? She tried to reach, not to break up the fight, but to specifically grab the guy's junk, all right? Now, that may seem like an effective self-defense tactic. I'm a self-defense teacher. Yes, it can be. The problem is, it's also, remember two weeks ago, Deuteronomy 23, who could and could not be part of the assembly of Israel? Someone with crushed or damaged testicles? Or cut off penis or, you know. So damaging a man's reproductive organ. Remember, that's where the symbol of circumcision was, was contained. Like, we just think it's weird and gross. But no, this is very important in the ancient Near East. It's a symbol of the covenant and the standing in the covenant. So grabbing for that part of the man in order to rescue or to turn the tide for your side of who you want to win in this fight between brothers is going to be met with a retaliation in terms of the law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Woman doesn't have a corresponding what she tried to grab. <laughs> Women don't have penises. Just newsflash. So this, the argument, this punishment goes, so then her palm must be either disfigured, cut, or shaped. Well, palm is one of the biblical euphemisms for genitalia. All throughout scripture, palm and foot are both euphemisms for genitals, for, for private parts. So he argues, and others have argued, whatever the punishment is, cutting, slicing, disfiguring, uh, whatever, just trimming, shaving, you know, what, that it is applying to the woman in response to what she tried to do to the man, which is render him unable to be part of the community of Israel if she were to actually damage his reproductive organs. So again, there's way more than we can get into and we're out of time. But it's important, this is a good verse uh, to mention because what it shows us is that there is background to these texts, historical, for understanding the laws. But even beyond that, there's just translation issues. And it's important to realize we need to be studying the Hebrew Bible, the actual meaning of the text. And most of the times, your translations like the NIV, New Revised, ESV, whatever, most of the times they get it right. But they're all interpretations. And what's inspired and authoritative is the original text. And in this case, this verse, NIV should put a big fat footnote 
And it should say, or, and give the alternate reading at the very least. Every Bible translation should do that at passages like this. Um, so, we're out of time. Um, I'm just going to finish up. I'm going to read these two verses because they're self-explanatory. Verse 13, kind of finishing out this section. Do not have two different weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. Do not have two different measures in your house, one large and one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. Equaling weights, equaling measures. Having lighter weights or smaller measures is a way of cheating somebody. And God's saying he detests this. We're going to look at verse 17 next week because that's kind of part of the next section. Um, but we're out of time. We're two minutes over, actually. So uh, check the blog, discipledojo.org slash blog. Scroll all the way down. You can read all about growing, grabbing, and hand cutting. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.